Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63? Psalm 63. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Psalm 63. The word of the Lord reads, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Fathers, we come before your word. I pray, Lord, that your word, your word alone would go forth. That we would behold Christ. That we would see you as our, our highest good. That there is nothing good outside of you. Lord, give us ears to hear, Lord. I pray you would impress these truths upon our heart. That you would form, that you would shape us, that you would make us, that you would transform us closer and closer into Christ's likeness. God, I pray that you'd be pleased with everything that is said this morning. In Christ's name, amen. When describing Christianity, especially to those who aren't Christian, J.I. Packer observed that there are two errors that one can make. He said, when stressing the differences that becoming a Christian will make, one error, he says, is that we tend to overly stress the good, so to speak. That we're stressing those differences that if you are a Christian, we say that he will, it will bring us forgiveness of sins, peace of conscience, and fellowship with God as our Father. That through the indwelling spirit that we overcome sins that previously mastered us, the light and the leading that God will give us and enable us to find, that he will give us guidance, self-fulfillment, personal relationships, all these things. All these things are good and true. Praise the Lord. But it's also possible, he said, to stress them that we, so to speak, we play down the rougher side of the Christian life. That we stress that all the blessings and the good things that are true of Christianity, that we, we lift those high and we, we really stress those to the point that the rougher side of Christianity, it's played down. That the humbling circumstances of life, the endless war with sin and with Satan, the periodic walks in darkness that you'll face, 
that when we stress all these good things, sometimes we stress them so much as to imply that none of these bad things will happen. That's one error. A second error, he also says, is, is presenting the easy life, or so to speak, the, the easiness of life compared with the hardness of life. And we not only stress the good things of life, but now he says in the second error that we stress the hard side of the Christian life. That one error is presenting the good life and stressing it, but the second error is really stressing the hardness of life, of the Christian life. Yeah, come be a Christian. You'll never stop suffering. You'll never stop weeping. You'll never stop the, the, the trials and tribulations. All these will be oppressed upon you. So one error stressing the good, other error stressing the bad. Both of these in error. But what's important is that the reason why he, he brings this up is, is to realize that as we stress these things, whether good or bad, as it was presenting that idea of Christianity to the others or to the world, is that we must keep in hand both the goodness of God, but also the reality of hardships. That one major problem with these views is that they, they, they wrongly address the reality of trials. That both of these views have a wrong view of the reality of difficulty. Beloved, as you already know, difficulty is promised to us in Christ. It's promised to us. Hardship is promised to us. Weeping days are are promised to us. Difficulty is promised. But yet, deep and abiding, satisfying joy is also promised to us. Now, in this psalm here, King David models what a satisfied soul looks like. He is one, in this situation here that we'll read, he is likely in one of the most difficult times in his life. And yet, he embodies biblical satisfaction. Now, just take note by observation, there's no imperative, there's no command in this psalm. He's not not over here uh, pleading and asking God necessarily from something in this psalm. He's not demanding anything. He's not crying out, seeking for something. It's not the case where he's in trouble and now he's asking God for help. But rather, David is already in a trying circumstance. And in this psalm, we see how his soul is comforted. It's not about him asking God from something that's not bad. We should do that. But I want us to see here how he models biblical satisfaction, biblical joy in the face of his hardship. Speaking about this very psalm, J.J. Stewart Peroni said that this is unquestionably one of the most beautiful and touching psalms in the whole book of Psalms. And in fact, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said that it was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public reading of this psalm. That's how rich this psalm is. So where is the hope for the weary soul? What is the secret of soul satisfaction? The secret is found in how David walks through this trial and finds sincere satisfaction. But what is the secret? In Psalm 63, there are three disciplines of a satisfied soul. Three disciplines of a satisfied soul. The first discipline is to seek God supremely. We'll see in the first five verses. To seek God supremely. In other words, seek him above all else. We must realize that that, that God is the ultimate source of joy. He is the ultimate source of our satisfaction. If you want to be satisfied, if you want to be complete, no matter what stage or no matter what turn of life, there is one essential thing that we must know and cling to, brothers and sisters. 
is that nothing or no one can fully satisfy you outside of God. That's just ground zero. That there's nothing, no one can satisfy you outside of God. We will seek everything. We can go anywhere. You can find satisfaction for a period of time. You can find partial satisfaction. You may even find joy for a certain amount of days. But there is nothing that will satisfy you completely other than God himself. And in the middle of this situation, David himself, he is longing for God. He longs for God. Verse 1, oh God, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. Some older translations may say, I, I seek you early. But the, the, the essence he's getting at here is, I am seeking you, Lord. I'm seeking you earnestly. This is an intense search for God. It's not just about seeking him in the morning first thing, which is good and we ought to do. But he is saying here, I'm seeking you earnestly, Lord. I mean, see how he words it in verse 1, continuing on. I mean, he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. And you see how he's paralleling there, the, the, the thirst of his soul with the yearning of his flesh? His soul and his flesh is involved here. Now, now remember here, where is he at in the midst of the writing this? He's in the wilderness. And he's saying here, in the midst of this wilderness, and, and, where there's no water, nothing to satisfy my flesh, I am yearning and my soul and my flesh yearns for you, God. He's not thirsting for water. He's not thirsting for Gatorade. He wants God. You see David's desperation here? That he is alone. He, he is, well, probably not alone. He probably has some soldiers with him. But he is alone in his own soul. He knows, I will explain through the circumstances, he, he knows that he has no one with him at that point. And yet, God, in the midst of this, while I have nothing to satisfy my own body, I realize that the greatest joy for me, from my physical body, from my inner soul, is for you. That you will satisfy me completely. Now, for the background here, notice the subscription of the psalm before verse 1. What does it say? A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. When he's in the wilderness of Judah, it's always important, especially in the Psalms, when it sees his background, because in order for us to understand the context of, of really what's the depth of this person trying to say, we want to know what is the background? Where, where is he at? Now, he's in the wilderness of Judah. One of two options. It's either while he was fleeing Saul, 1 Samuel 23, or while he was fleeing from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. Either fleeing from Saul when Saul was on his eagle trip and he had to run, or his own son, Absalom. And I think it's the latter. He's fleeing from Absalom, his own son, 2 Samuel 15. The one reason why I say that, one big reason, we'll look at it later in verse 11. He's saying, but the king will rejoice in God. And that king, he's not talking about God. He's not saying the king, God, will rejoice in God. He's, he's saying in the third person of himself. He's saying, but the king, as for me, I will rejoice in God. David was not a king when he was fleeing from Saul. Saul was the king. And he's not speaking of Saul here either because Saul obviously was not rejoicing and searching for God. He's speaking of himself, that he is the king. He's fleeing from Absalom, and he's going to rejoice in God. So in the wilderness here, it's important, I think, for us to grasp that I think he is fleeing from Absalom, which is important. Now, just as Old Testament background here, if you remember the events surrounding David's fleeing from Absalom, he heard that the people's hearts were with Absalom, his, his son. He, he also was craving for the power. This is after Absalom killed his own 
brother for, for contaminating his own sister. So David, Absalom had to flee. And eventually he came back into the kingdom and he came up to David. And now David's finding now that, that the people's hearts are with Absalom. That Absalom is secretly trying to subvert his own dad's kingdom. That he wants his throne. And David's hearing now that, whoa, the people are actually following him. And so now David flees in 2 Samuel 15. And so not only is David's throne at stake here, but David's own life. He's fleeing from his own family, his own son, his own blood. And in the middle of all this, he is longing for what he is certain will satisfy him. So he seeks God. He seeks God. He doesn't seek for have his throne immediately back. He doesn't seek for, 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 for immediate justice and, and murder for the sake of his own name, but rather he seeks for God. Now, if we want to seek God supremely, our seeking must have these two elements that David here supplies for us. If we want to seek God supremely, our seeking must have these two elements, and that is the knowledge of God and the worship of God. If you want to seek God, two elements must be involved in your seeking, the knowledge of God and the worship of God. This knowledge here we see is so crucial because to seek God entails seeing God as he is. That if you want to seek someone, you got to know who you're seeking. If I'm looking for my phone, I have to know what my phone looks like. I got to know what my keys, what tag I have on my key. I need to know what I'm looking for. That our seeking must involve knowledge. It's a prerequisite of seeking to to know. And in verse 2, David says this. He says in verse 2, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Now this appears to be a random thought in the middle of this. He's saying, I, I, I seek you earnestly, so thus I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. Like, well, what's the connection here he's drawing here for us? It appears to be random, but, but, but keep his train of thought. Because he previously said that he was longing for God. And now, key word, thus, or so, I have seen you in the sanctuary. So when did this happen? When did this, this knowledge happen? I'm longing for you. I'm seeking for you. And so I've seen you in the sanctuary. When did that seeing happen? It was either then or in the past. It's probably not then because there's no sanctuary in the wilderness. There is no sanctuary where he's at. So he's reflecting on his seeking God in the past where he would behold God's goodness in the sanctuary which symbolized God's dwelling with the people. So what he's doing here for he said, I seek you, Lord. I'm seeking you earnestly. And because I'm seeking you earnestly, that's also been consistent with what I've done in the past, that because I'm seeking you, I've sought you where I can see you most beautifully displayed in the sanctuary. That that is where they went to see the goodness of God in the sanctuary. That this was God symbolizing his presence with his people. That I am dwelling, I'm tabernacling with you. That I am with you as a people. So I not only drew you out of Egypt, but now I'm dwelling here. My glory is among you and it's displayed in the temple. Now this is the thought, like we can be anywhere and be in the presence of God. That he dwells within us. That's that's just a, 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 a crippling thought for me to realize that that God's presence is fully displayed with me no matter where I'm at as a New Testament believer. No matter where you're at, the fullness of God is available for you, believer. But for him, 
He says, if I want to see the fullness of God, I go to where God displayed his glory in the temple. And that, that, that sanctuary where housed the, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, these things were a symbol that God said, I will be your God. You will be my people. You're in my hands. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will comfort you. So David said, here, I've sought you. And so I went to where I know I could see you most fully displayed in the sanctuary. And I saw your power and your glory. Your power and your glory is seen in all of these things. It's seen in the fact that you are dwelling here with us. So you see his desperation here. That I seek you, Lord. And so I knew that in order to seek you, I must know you as you are. In order to know the fullness of his God, he had to go where God revealed himself. Through his own word. So his present search for God, notice, arises from his past experiences and fellowship with God and his enjoyment of God's goodness. Now notice here, one person said this way, that the longing of David is not the longing of a stranger. This is not the longing of a stranger, but of a close, dear friend. That David is not just seeking just someone, just randomly, okay, I'm in a rough, I'm in a rough circumstance, now let me cry out to you. No, 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 no. He knew how good God was. Because not just when he was in this circumstance in the wilderness, he knew who God was while he was in the throne and in the castle, while he was on the mountaintop. He knew God's goodness there, and he knew the same goodness of God there would be the same goodness of God in the wilderness. This is not the longing of a stranger, but he knew the goodness of God, and that's what he was seeking because he saw there God's fullness, the revelation of God. A central attribute of God that he centers on here is is interesting here because he says right after that in verse 3 that because your loving kindness is better than life. He centers on God's loving kindness. This is is a, a... central word here in the Old Testament, his loving kindness. This is his hesed, his, his, his loyal love, in other words. That this is God's, one person said it this way, it's, it's God's love, loyal love with his people. That's closest thing in the New Testament word that we have to loving kindness is mercy. That the same word is used here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is mercy that we would have. So if you want to see that he's saying that because your loving kindness, because your loyal love, because your mercy is better than life. He's centering here on this attribute of God in verse three, his loving kindness. As he's reflecting on the knowledge of who God is, he centers on that knowledge on God's loving kindness. You think about God's loving kindness for us in Christ, that God's mercy for us in Christ that it's still abiding for us here, believer, that God's mercy is available. That this mercy is not contingent. It's already been said this so far in the service. This mercy of God, this loving kindness of God is not contingent upon the worth of the person. It's not contingent upon the merits of the person. God's loving kindness, God's mercy is contingent upon his own character for his own glory. So David here, as he's in the wilderness, abandoned and alone, he says, I, because of your loving kindness is better than life. Why is it better than life? His loving kindness extends beyond life. His loving kindness is richer than life. There's nothing better for him than God's loving kindness, that God's goodness, 
that, that, that believer, you can never tire yourself with God's unmerited mercy and grace towards you. That there is never a reason for us to cease to, to, to not be in awe of God's loving kindness. That his mercy is abounding day after day after day after day. In the midst of my failure, in the midst of my rebellion, in my faithlessness, he is faithful. He is good. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is powerful. He is loving. It's abounding more and more and more believer, David is soaked in this, that your loving kindness is better than life. So what's the result? We see the knowledge here of the seeking, but now let's look at the worship, that because he has this knowledge of who God is, I've seen you in your sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory. I have seen the fullness of your revelation. I, I look at the Ten Commandments, and I am in awe of your power, your holiness. I, I see you. I, I see you. I know you. And now look how he responds. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. He not only has this knowledge in his seeking, but that seeking involves worship. That because of what he knew to be true of God, he responded in rightful worship. So I will bless you as long as I live, verse 4. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Are you sensing a theme here? He said, my lips will praise, hands will be raised. This is in prayer and also in worship. It's okay to raise your hands. He says, my heart will bless, mouth will offer praises with joyful lips. This is an all-encompassing worship in response to the biblically informed knowledge of his God. That because of this is true, I will respond in worship. Because your loving kindness, God, is better than life, I will praise you with my lips. I will lift up my hands through prayer and worship. My heart will bless you. That my mouth will offer praises. That this is an all-encompassing praise and worship. That it's on the fruit of his lips. That he is blessing God. But also inwardly, his heart rejoices in these truths. That it's not something he's just spouting off. But this is something that is burned inside and it pours out. That he is praising God because he is good. And keep in mind, let's remember, right? The circumstance, he's in the wilderness. He's thirsty, hungry, abandoned. His own throne is at stake. And he can offer this worship to God in the midst of that. Like his life is unraveling. But his heart is where? His heart is before the throne of God. That he's worshiping God, not with just this this Christianese, oh God, I had a rough day, a rough week, and I lost this person, lost this person, and I lost my bank account. But you know, God is good. God is good in the midst of that. This is the real worship. That he realizes that God's loving kindness is better than his bank account. It's better than the person. It's better than the trial and circumstance. It's better than losing his sleep. It's better than everything that he's worth. It's better than that. That God, your goodness is better than that. And not only is it better than that, it will sustain me through all these things. And so I will rejoice not in the difficulty. I will rejoice in your goodness day after day after day. Oh, I'm in the wilderness. I'll rejoice in your goodness in the wilderness. I mean, Think about it, even the Pharisee worships God when things are going well. But David here is worshiping in the wilderness 
because of his knowledge of who God is and his rightful response. But even more, notice how in verse 5 it parallels the idea of this satisfied soul and praise. Verse 5, it says that my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. That his soul is satisfied as though he had marrow and fatness. This is, this is the most precious meats that, that for us, for as maybe Americans, the fat maybe we cut off or we set to the side here. But no, no, the, the fats, the, the marrow, the, the, these were the, the, the choice meats that they would offer these in, in sacrifice to God. These were the best meats. And he's saying here that my soul is satisfied as though I've taken in these choice meats, these delicious meats, this, this, this good steakhouse meats. That I'm satisfied as though I've taken that in. That this is a true, deep satisfaction. And because he is satisfied, he praises God, not just in his heart, but with his lips. That he's paralleling this idea of being satisfied in my soul. Because I'm satisfied in my soul, I'm blessing with my lips. So what we can learn from that here is that if my lips, if my heart is not blessing God, am I truly satisfied in God? Am I truly satisfied in God? Because if I'm not, my mouth is going to spurt out those things that I really am set with. It really exposes, really, what is my soul satisfied in? My soul is satisfied with a peaceful life. So that's why I'm happy. My soul is satisfied with the ease and comfort of life. My soul is satisfied with the riches of life. And so when that is removed and I'm starving and I'm hungry, where else am I going to go? Back to those things which won't satisfy. But you see here, he's saying that because I'm satisfied, my soul is satisfied with these choicest meats in God that I will rejoice and praise in him. Where is the soul at? A litmus, toll, a litmus test of where the soul is at is really what is, what is the joyful remembrance of the heart? What is the worship of the heart? What am I rejoicing in? What am I taking joy in? I think another question we want to kind of let's push this a little further, right? Because this, this is a real reality. Let's not, let's not, play, let's not play innocent here. Life is difficult. We, there are tough trials in our lives, amen? Like, life is hard sometimes. But, but he's promising here a soul satisfying with choice meats. What is that satisfaction? What is this, this soul clinging, this, this soul the fulfillment, this, this soul delighting in? Like, what is this? Where can I find this? I don't have an exhaustive list, but a few things, even some people that some people pointed out here, how are we satisfied as with the meat of marrow and fatness? I think one is feasting us with the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus himself said, I'm the bread of life, that, that he is our sole sustenance of eternal life, that my joy, my fulfillment is in knowing that I have life eternal in Christ. That because he, he poured out his blood and died for me, that I can be reunited with him. Showing us his glory in the face of Christ. That, some, that sometimes, there are times when we need to see God's glory and his preciousness, his, his awesome wonder. And we see that in the face of Christ. That I'm satisfied knowing the power and wonder of my God. Another way we are satisfied with, with, as with marrow and fatness is shedding abroad his love in our hearts. That there is a mysterious sometimes in ways, an, an un, 
unfathomable peace that he gives us in the midst of these hardships that we can get when we come before his throne. That we're satisfied with his peace and his love that is really unexplainable. I think he also feasts us with new covenant promises. That there are new covenant promises for you, believer in Christ, that even David didn't have at that point in time. That as a new covenant believer, you have the precious promise of the God indwelling in you, as I already said. That God dwells within you. That his love for you is never ending. It's abiding and abounding in him. That his peace that surpasses all understanding, a covenant prom- new covenant promise for you. That we can go on and on about every promise granted to you in Christ, joy unexplainable. He also satisfies us by filling us with his spirit. That we have the promise of the filling of his spirit to sustain us. He also satisfies us by reviving to us former experiences of his faithfulness. That in the midst of our despair, that God brings into our memory things that he has done for us in the past that, that really extol his own glory. That we're reminded of his greatness in our life, even if it's just the salvation of my soul. That I'm reminded of God's goodness, of how he sustained me in my prior past. That I am filled with joy. I am satisfied with the fatness and marrow. I think another way he satisfies is through his own divine goodness. That the goodness of God satisfies completely. He satisfies us supremely through the ministry of his word. That as, as I know I need to be reminded of who my God is, I can go to the word of God and through the work of the spirit, he will work upon my soul. That I can bring my concerns before him. That he, this is not just some superficial satisfaction here we're talking about here. I'm not offering you some cheap salesman stuff. This is based on the goodness of God and his word. That he will deeply. I think the hardest thing for us in the time of distress is to offer praise to God. But yet notice here, that's, that's really the psalmist's only recourse here. That he is not reflecting on his loneliness He'll touch on it later. He's not reflecting on his hardship, so, so to speak, but he's reflecting on the loving kindness of God and he's responding in unceasing praise. So seeking God is supremely just that. Seeking God above all else, rightly understanding his character and responding rightly. I think our biggest problem is that when we find ourselves starving, when our soul is weary, we go for water. We go for water. We go to other gods. We go to other wells. Our problem often is that when we're starving, when there's a real need there, I look for that need to be fulfilled in something else, someone else. We go to other things and we drink from it. And it may taste delicious at that time, but it'll walk away with a bitter taste in our mouth. And now where do I go? But David here knows where his supreme delight is, where his supreme hope is. And he seeks God, knowing who God is, seeing God's character, and responding rightly in worship for that God. Second discipline is delighting in God's deeds. Delighting in God's de- delight in God's deeds. Delight in God's deeds. Verses 6 through 8. So we see here that not only David, he seeks for God, but he thinks often of God. 
that his pursuit of God is paired with his meditation of God. So he not only thinks much of God, but he thinks often of God. Look at verse six. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you on the night watches. So he's not only talking about his pursuit of God and seeking of God, but now here we're seeing that David's, his soul is moving from the seeking, the pursuit, to realizing that the meditation of his own heart. So not only is he seeking, but he's delighting in God. When I remember you on my bed, this really speaks of him remembering God's deeds of past. That he's not just talking about thinking of God in that present moment, but he's saying here that when I remember you, he's speaking of God's faithful deeds of past. He's calling to mind how God has been faithful with him before. And he meditates on them through all the night watches. In other words, all throughout the hours of the night. This here, the same remembering, meditating here is the same kind of meditation we've seen in other places of Scripture. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, that this book of the law shall not depart from my mouth, but I shall meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not, right, to the counsel of the wicked. But he says later, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. This is the kind of meditating we're seeing here. And meditating here on God's word is so essential for us that we need to meditate on the truth of God. But David is also meditating on God's specific acts of faithfulness and goodness in his life. He's meditating on the word of God. We know that's true. But here he's meditating here. When I remember you on my bed, I'm remembering how faithful you have been to me in the past. Now just think about what could David be thinking about? I'm just guessing here. I'm I'm throwing out a limb here. uh, But David and Goliath? (laughs) I mean, what about all the the lions and the bears he attacked? Like all all in the wilderness, other times from Saul's throne? All the times he has been preserved by God's hand. What could David be thinking about? Endless times. No wonder why through the watches of the night. That I think about you, I remember you on my bed, and I think about how you sustained me here, how good you've been here, how faithful you've been here. Even when I was short here, God, you were so good to me there. I'm thinking about you constantly on my bed. That he is not only seeking God, but he's delighting in these things day and night. Then all of his recounting, he says in verse 7, that in all this, that you have been my help. That you've been my help. That... We can, we're living testimonies that you could sit here and tell me all the goodness of God in your life. And, and we could hear of God's goodness, how he's preserved you here, how he provided for you here, how he's been good to you here, how he sustains you here. And we tell of God's goodness till we turn blue. And we'll have the same response as David. You have been my help. That you have been my help. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, what does he do? I sing for joy. This singing here is, is, is a jubilant cry that he can sing of such joy because he knows whose hands he's in. That because you, for you have been my help, therefore I, I sing for joy. I mean, this is the picture here. Yeah, I, I think in my mind, of, you know, a parent with their kid, they can take their kid and swing them around in circles and circles and circles. And the kid is there just like smiling, laughing. Take, the, the father takes the kid and throws him in the air. The mom's like freaking out, but the dad's <laughs> throw him in the air. And the kid's like, ah, oh, and just cry, laughing and just happy as all else. And the child has no idea any, of any danger. No, no, I'm in my dad's hands. I'm swinging. I'm, I'm in the air. This is fun. And that's kind of the picture here that David gives for us, that, that in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. That, that, that no matter where I'm at, no matter what's around me, no matter what's at stake, I can sing for joy because I know under whose wing I am. 
that I know how good you are in the past. You've been faithful in the past, and David knows you'll be faithful now. I can sing for joy because I know who your character is. I know how good you are. I reflected on your deeds. I remember them constantly. And so I can sing for joy even in the wilderness, that he knows how good God is. I mean, think about why in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That this is deep truths he's holding on to here. That even though it's difficult, even though it's hard for me right now, I will fix my eyes on what I know to be true. And I will cling to that for all else, knowing that by your spirit, you will preserve me. You will keep me no matter how faithless I feel I am today. I know you are faithful that I will cling to your faithfulness. I will cling to your unchanging character. And because I'm in your care, I am under your wing, I will sing for joy. See, the context of this cry for joy and God's protection is connected with God's faithful deeds of old. He knows who God is. And so because he knows God to be proven shelter, he knows this because he knows this to be true. He rejoices. I think it's often for us, how often do we lose sight of God's historical deeds of faithfulness in our own personal lives? In the middle of our trouble, the biggest thing in my mind is my trouble. <laughs> like, I, yeah, okay, I'm, I know God is good, but no, but, but this is big. <laughs> how, do, how do I deal with this? But David here is running like, I know this is big, but guess what? God, you're even bigger than this. That you are bigger, you are greater, and you have been in the past. And I know, God, you will be now. Though my faith is small, Lord, increase my faith. Help me to see your goodness. Help me to see you as I ought. He takes it even further, though. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You hear he's saying, my, my soul clings after you. And this, this idea of clinging after you, it, it's not just clinging side by side, but it's really clinging after someone following after them. That this is like a, a term of marital devotion, that, I'm, that I am connected to you, I'm following after you. Same term used of Ruth. He says, no, 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 I will go where you go, that your God will be my God. That, that, that this is the kind of devotion he's talking about here. My soul clings, follows after you. I will follow your lead and I will be after you. I will come after you. I'll follow because I know that wherever you go is good and I'll trust wherever you lead me. That if you lead me in the wilderness, I'll still trust you. If you lead me to the, the mountaintop, I'll trust you. He says that, that my soul clings to you. Parallels that with my, your right hand upholds me. He's giving the same thought for us. Now, let's, let's, let's take a second to think about this. How could David long for the Lord unless he was partaking of the Lord before and outside of this particular hardship? Let's stop and think about this. We know these things to be true. If we want to follow David's heart here, he, he's not just starting to trust in God here. As he's in the wilderness, this is not something new. Okay, what I did before isn't working, so now let me start trusting in the Lord. That's not David's case here. He's not just starting to now put his trust in the Lord. This was the rehearsal of David's life before this and outside of this hardship. That is key and crucial for us to remember. Because you may not be in a hardship right now. Maybe you've had a a, a good 
decent life so far, a good month, good week. That may be good. That, 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 praise the Lord. He's good in that. But, but notice here, David's discipline here was not to do these things when things became hard, but to practice and discipline to do these things before in the times when things are good and also when things are bad. So when it's bad, it's business as usual. That this is the part of David, a routine part of his life. And then now he found himself in the wilderness, it's business as usual. C.S. Lewis said that the psalmist here had an appetite for God. That his appetite for God did not just start in the wilderness. It began before that. That he was delighting in God. This is a daily discipline. Delighting in God all throughout his life. No matter how good it is. No matter how bad it is. Because the typical thing for us is we're quick to cling to God when we need to cling to God. But let's be honest here. When we don't need to cling to God, so to speak... It's easy for us to coast and to be satisfied in just the, the, the complacency of life. But he is disciplined outside of that. That his goodness in God is not just in the hardship, but his goodness in God is even in his highest points of life. That he is seeking God to know him even de- deeper and to know him better, even when things are good for him, when things are going well for him. He's delighting in God's deeds. Third discipline, to bring your burdens to God. Bring your burdens to God. Seek God supremely, delight in God's deeds. Third discipline, bring your burdens to God. Verse 9 through 11. Now, now we get to verse 11, and there's still a reality here of David's enemies. I mean, he knows where to find his joy. He knows where to stake his inward contemplations, but... There's still a real opportunity for danger. <laughs> There's still men who are still trying to take my throne. I know, he, he, know God, he knows God is good. He, 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 he staked his heart in God's goodness, but Absalom is still trying to take my throne. There's still a reality of danger. His kingdom is still under duress. The nation is still unraveling. My trial is still unresolved. I know God is good, but my trial is still present. My difficulty is still here. My hardship has not been removed. So what does he do with this? What does he do with this? Well, here now we've seen one of these moments of the Psalms where he starts to pronounce curses on his enemies. But yet, understand here that that the curses you see in Psalms, in random places in the Psalms, they're never given for the sake of the psalmist's personal gain. He's never pronouncing a curse against someone, against his enemy, for the sake of his own glory. He's not just saying, wipe out this person because they messed with me. Like that, that, that's never what we see here in, this, in the psalms. He doesn't wish condemnation on them just because he's simply mad at them. Rather, the offense of the enemy is not against the psalmist. The offense of the enemy is against the psalmist's God. That at the core of it, he knows that it's not just about Absalom and David. He realizes that his enemies are at odds with God. And because they're at odds with God, he can pronounce condemnation, not for his own sake, but for the glory and the sake of God. That God, you're righteous, and I know you to condemn and to punish the wicked. And so I know that be true even in this situation. So he, he can pronounce these, these offenses because he realizes at the core of it, they are at odds with God. And look how he phrases it. He said, they'll be defeated, but it says the king will rejoice in God. That those who seek my life to destroy it, they will go into the depths of the earth. 
They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. That here he's saying here that, that all those, those who are actually seeking me, that there's a still reality of my distress, that they're going to go in the depths of the earth. They're going to die. That the power of the sword, the same sword they're wielding against him, will overtake them. That they'll be a prey for foxes. To be compared with foxes in that context, is, I mean, the foxes are a better word, jackals, like wild dogs, are, are kind of imagery of a, of a deserted city that's been wiped out. That the, the dogs are there feasting after leftovers, leftover meat that the larger animals took over. That, that, that's, that's what you're being compared to, that they're going to be left over to the jackals, the foxes. They're going to be destroyed. And furthermore, after that, he says, but as for me, the king, but I will rejoice in God. And everyone who swears by him will glory or boast that I will swear by him, that everyone who swears by God will glory. This idea of swearing is not just the idea of just swearing an oath as we have like in, in the court of law, but it's the idea of, of swearing a life of doing good in the name of the Lord. That he is saying here that, that my hope, my delight will be in God. That everyone who swears and does good in the name of the Lord, they will win. Since they will rejoice. That I will rejoice. Not just because of my own good, because I've accomplished it. Because I know who the Lord is. And I know what he will accomplish. So if you swear, in other words, a pledge in the name of the Lord to do good. I mean, think of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. And this is constantly out throughout, throughout Deuteronomy while Moses is speaking to the Israelites. He tells them in many other ways that you shall fear only the Lord. You shall worship him. You shall swear by him. In other words, that you shall fear only the Lord. You shall follow after him. You shall swear by him. You should do all the good according to his name. That this is not unusual speech for the Old Testament. But here's the key in this. We still don't answer the question, what does David do with the reality of all these enemies that are still coming after him? He knows where his joy is staked. He knows where he can rejoice and find his hope in. But the reality of what do I do with the still, my circumstance? He places them before the Lord. He entrusts them to God. That David entrusts them to God. That even though he is in the middle of almost losing his throne, even though he's in the middle of potentially trying to lose his life, he knows that he will rejoice in God. That he knows that God will be just. And here's a key, here's a key in placing your burden before him. The outcome is always glory because he says that the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. In other words, will boast. That they will boast not just because of how great they are, but they will boast in the faithfulness and the justice of God. That they will boast in who God is. That he knows God to be a just God who will punish the wicked. He will do rightly with them, not just because they offended David, but because they offended God. So even the burdens in his life, he realizes and he entrusts them to the sovereign hand of God. And so I can, everyone who swears by him, everyone who fears him only will boast in who God is. They will boast in his greatness. Now, obviously, he doesn't promise a change. It doesn't promise to change the circumstance. It may not change. It may still be the same. But I can boast because I know God will do rightly at all times. That if he allows this opposition to continue, I know God is still just and he's doing good and he remains good for me in it. I can entrust them to God. I can entrust my circumstance, my burden to God because I know God always does good. 
entrusting my enemy to God, he's exalting in God's justice. Because the end of those who don't, he says in verse 11, that the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. They're speaking lies. That's the character. The very opposite of swearing by the Lord. They're not swearing by the Lord. They're swearing by their own. They're speaking lies. They may even say, it's actually kind of funny, in Absalom, in David's background, before um, before Absalom comes back, he, he goes up to David. He says, hey, David, can I go to Hebron? And I, I want to fulfill my vows I paid to the Lord. And then right after that, he's actually doing a rouse to take over David's throne. <laughs> and he's lying. He's lying in the midst of that. And the mouths of those will be stopped. And surely Absalom was stopped. That the false testimony will be self-exposed. That God will rightly deal in the present or in the future. And even in the context of hardship, that even in our hardships that we face, even if it doesn't change, and the promise we have to rejoice and to boast in God's goodness, what we can boast in is to know that, no, 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 it didn't change. My health didn't get better. My, my, my circumstance didn't change. But you know what I'm boasting in? In God's forever goodness, day by day by day. That God is faithful in the small things, in the greater things. He's been faithful of old. I know he'll be faithful in present because he'll be faithful in the future. So David's hope is secured in the promise that God will justly protect the doers of his word and will judge the wicked rightly. So he brings his burdens to God. The still reality of a circumstance is brought before God. So David delights in his soul by seeking God supremely, by delighting in God's deeds, by placing his burdens before God. Now, if I give you two promises, if I give you two promises, one is, your guaranteed hardships. Second promise is, I have the antidote for you for every single hardship. The first promise, you're guaranteed promise, you're guaranteed hardships. But the second is the antidote, antidote that God in himself will be your only solution for all of your hardships. Good, bad, light, heavy. I give you two promises, hardships, but the antidote. Would you take it? I think we all would say yes. We all would say yes, but I think the humbling truth for us is that we say yes, yeah, I want the solution. I'm in trouble. Yes, of course I want the solution, but consider that this is not just about saying, yes, I I want the the, the antidote when times are rough. Go back to David's heart, that he's staking his heart in these truths even when it's not rough. If you want the antidote, take the antidote at all times. That the antidote starts now. It starts now. That it's not just waiting for your time of hardship. Now let me go to Psalm 63. No, 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 no. This is a daily discipline. That we are delighting ourselves in who God is. When our time, when I have good days and bad days. But if that's not our daily discipline in the good days, brothers and sisters, we can't just wait for the bad days. I mean, yes, God is faithful, even if we're not in this endeavor. But I'm saying here is that we must be daily discipliners of taking in God's goodness, being saturated with this character. Because the question is, if you're not, what are you saturating your soul in? What are you longing after? What makes you happy? What makes you content? What brings you satisfaction? What brings you joy? What are you longing after? What does your calendar look like? What does your bank account look like? What are your affections of your thoughts when no one can see your thoughts? Really, where is your satisfaction on those good days? Because if we want the antidote, if this is the true antidote that the Bible promises us, it promises us in the good days and the bad. And I also think it's 
It's also important to realize that the background of this psalm, we know that David's fleeing from Absalom. But if you're familiar with the background of, of David in this story, is David's, David's troubles are indirectly as a result of his own sin. Now, you remember in 2 Samuel 11 that Nathan told him that the sword will not depart from your house. That he promised him because of your sin, you will face hardship. And now David here is in the wilderness facing hardship. And yet he says, your loving kindness is better than life. That even in David's mess ups, in his sin, in his rebellion, he went back to God whose loving kindness was there in spite of his own sin that brought him there. So no matter where you're at in life, no matter how faithful you've been in the past, faithfulness starts now. Being delighted and disciplined and and being satisfied in who Christ is now. That his loving kindness abounds not only in our sin, but even in our triumphs. His loving kindness is sufficient for every stage of our life. That believer, the same loving kindness that brought you to Christ, that opened your eyes to see your sin, to see the beauty of Christ, that loving and kindness abounds to you now. Delight in that. Delight in his character. Because when he brings you to the wilderness, you have nothing else to delight in except him. And because of this, we see why his loving kindness is better than life. And because of that, I'll praise you. If your heart is not marked with unceasing praise, then you will never find soul satisfaction. If, 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 let's search our own hearts, right? Let's, let's rehearse our own hearts. We're all guilty of this. But let's, if my heart is not marked, my lips are not marked with unceasing praise to God, where is my soul being satisfied in? We will rejoice in what we love. What is the mark? What is the character trait of your heart, of your soul contemplation, and the rejoicing of your lips? Is it in God, or where is it at? I think for all of us, is no matter where, where we're at, we always can excel in this, is we need to go back, consider the greatness of, a God, the greatness of God and his glory, and respond rightly. That we go back and look to his greatness and his glory, and respond rightly in worship. So that no matter where we're at in life, we know we always have unceasing reason to worship. Charles Spurgeon said this way, if there be nothing below and nothing went in to cheer us, it is a thousand mercies that we can look up and find all we need. There may be nothing around us, nothing here to cheer us at times, but it's a thousand mercies that we can always look up and find what we need. Would you pray with me? Father, how short of this we fall. That you are all in all. And yet, God, we turn and look to other wellsprings of life that offer life and are really a wellspring of death. God, how tempted, how how weary we are and and so prone to, to fall away and to seek after that which is not lovely. God, I pray that you would give us a heart that longs for you. That, Lord, this would not be just something, a religious discipline of us, but, Father, I pray that we would look to Christ and delight in Christ daily. That it would be a routine of our lives to to behold his goodness, your loving kindness, and that we would rejoice in your character, rejoice in who you are. I pray that it would be the discipline of our lives, that we would respond rightly to the work of righteousness you've done in our lives. 
So Lord, make us lovers of Christ in deeper ways, in ways we have not loved him before. I pray you would expose those areas of our life that we're seeking satisfaction outside of you. I pray you would expose those, bring those to the surface. And I pray, Lord, we repent and throw those aside and put our trust and our delight in Christ. So, Lord, I pray you would work your work in us through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.